0: Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 13, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. It says, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink uh, the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, those worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, I know I may indict myself by asking this question, but when was the last time you heard a sermon about hell or about the wrath of God? Can you think of that? If you were to go back 10 years... 20 years? How many sermons do you think you may have heard on those or related, on the judgment of God? I trust you've heard a few here, as especially as we've gone through this, this book. And this text, in case you hadn't read it beforehand until, we, until just this morning, our text kind of confronts us with what are some uncomfortable and certainly unpopular truths out of the word of God, the final judgment, the sober reality of hell. The wrath of God, the eternal punishment of the unrepentant and the unbelieving. Very sobering things to think about, very serious things to contemplate, but they are found not just in Revelation, they're found throughout the Bible. We just read a long passage from Jeremiah 51, and it doesn't talk about hell, but it kind of talks about something that's a picture of hell. God's judgments, his his chastisements and judgments on this earth in history are a a foretaste of the final judgment. These truths, I feel like the more I I read these kinds of things, the more I feel like I'm saying the same things over and over again. Every doctrine we talk about, I feel like I'm saying this truth is one of the most neglected truths in the church in our day, but it's true. I guess there's a lot of neglected truths in God's word. Many many preachers and teachers seem to avoid these things like the plague, Some of you have read J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. I've read it a number of times. In Knowing God, he has a chapter on the wrath of God, and there he writes this. The fact is that the subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society, and Christians, by and large, have accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the matter. We may well ask whether this is as it should be, for the Bible behaves quite differently. One cannot imagine that talk of divine judgment was ever very popular, yet the biblical writers engage in it constantly. One of the most striking things about the Bible is the vigor with which both both testaments emphasize the reality and terror of God's wrath. It's important that he mentions both testaments because some people have this idea in their heads, it's not from the Bible, that the Old Testament God is a God of wrath but somehow in the New Testament, that somehow has changed. And I've already asked it this morning once, but does God change? No. The same God who judged Babylon is going to judge one day all the living and the dead. Through Jesus Christ, who is going to return, as we confess, every first Sunday with the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Who is he? Christ. God's King, the Lord. The Bible, as, as Packer says, says, it really does behave quite differently than we tend to do when it comes to these doctrines. And I think that should be instructive for us in the church, especially for people like myself, preachers and teachers. The job of, of a preacher and a pastor, if you were to write a job description or, or definition of what a pastor should do, that might include a lot of things. But one of the main things a preacher must do is make the, count, the whole counsel of God known. Paul talks about that very phrase in Acts twenty twenty seven talks about making the, the whole counsel of God known, uh, and to fail to do that is to fail to be innocent of the blood of all men. Paul said, not long before he you know, was taken into to prison and, and was killed, he told the Ephesian elders that he was innocent of the blood of all men. Why? Because he did not fail to declare the whole counsel of God to them. He did his best, by the grace of God, to tell them all of the truth of God's word that he could. He didn't hide anything. He didn't de-emphasize something that God emphasizes. When the Bible emphasizes something, we should emphasize it. We tend to do the opposite. We tend to emphasize sometimes the things that God talks about but doesn't spend all this time on in the Bible. And then we de-emphasize things that we find to be uncomfortable or off-putting to some. The scriptures, because they so often warn of the judgment to come, the reality of hell, and the eternal torment that awaits the unrepentant, uh, because that's the case, it, it's impossible. It's impossible to make the whole counsel of God known if we neglect these truths. We're not, we're not doing anybody any favors if we neglect these truths. You know, there's a, a, a theologian some of you may have heard of, John Murray. He writes about some necessary emphases in preaching And he he talks about the necessity of emphasizing these kinds of truths, and he says, It is this note that of God's wrath and judgment to come. It is this note that will impart to the message of the gospel and to the demand for faith and and repentance the urgency that is consonant with the desperate situation for which the gospel is the one and only provision. Our age needs the ministry that will make men tremble before the awful majesty and holiness of God, and in the conviction of the reality of his holy wrath. Read that last line again. Our age, and he wrote this a long time ago, frankly. Uh, So this this isn't just about our day. This has been true for a long time. Our age needs the ministry that will make men tremble before the awful majesty and holiness of God and in the conviction of the reality of his holy wrath. What is missing... You could say a lot of things in answer to that, but what is missing from the preaching in most of our churches today more than the majesty and holiness of God? <clears throat> How much of what passes for biblical preaching serves to entertain rather than make men tremble before God? You know, we, we should never carelessly offend. It goes for especially myself, anybody who's up front, but as Christians, we should never be quick to offend. We should be careful. As, it, as however it depends upon you to not give unnecessary offense. But we should be far more concerned that our hearers, that our neighbors have offended God than that we might give offense to them by speaking the truth in love. I think we turn the whole thing on its head. We're so worried about offending someone else with some truth that God has revealed. What we should be worried about is they have offended God in some way they should be more worried that they've offended God in some way than that they might be offended at God's truth. And despite the unpopularity of such preaching and preaching on these things among even professing evangelicals and the ridicule of the scoffing of many critics and skeptics and unbelievers who, you know, how many times have you heard someone kind of dismissively talk about, not that we hear much of it anymore, but, you know, fire and brimstone preaching. When you think of a Southern Baptist sermon, you know, years ago, oh, Southern, it's fire and brimstone. And when you say that, what's the implication? You dismiss it. Oh, it's just one of those old school preachers that talks about hell. And we know nobody does that now. You know, we, we must not try to be wiser than God. We must make God's truth known and trust that God will use it. If it's in the Bible, it's there for a reason. And if it's in the Bible repeatedly, it's there for a reason. And so we we need to make God's truth known and trust that God knows what he's doing, that he'll use it not just to build you and I up in the faith, but also to convert the lost. Well, last Sunday, if you were here, we looked at verses 6 through 7 primarily of our our passage. And there we saw that the first of those three angels had a a specific message to proclaim. What what was his message? It says he had an eternal gospel to proclaim. Verse 6. Now think about that. If you read verses 6 through 11, it's not a very big paragraph. You have three angels with three messages, one after the other in rapid succession. You have one with the eternal gospel to proclaim, and you barely have time to finish saying the words. And then you have the second angel coming right on his heels, uh, flying, and saying, Babylon is fallen, or fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And then right after that, you have the pronouncement of, of judgment. And I can't help but think that the fact that you have these three messages, one after the other, after the other, so close uh, together, I think that it's, it's I think it's meant to emphasize the urgency of the first angel's message. That the good news of the gospel, the eternal gospel, uh, must be believed. That Christ must be believed in. The, the mercy was really held forth, the offer of mercy to those who would repent and turn to Christ, but the fact that those two messages of judgment follow so closely after, I think, is meant to emphasize for us the urgency of the message of that eternal gospel and the shortness of time, really, uh, that we have to heed its message and turn to Christ by faith. Well, this morning I want to look at the second two angels in the passage and what their messages imply uh, and teach us this morning. So the second angel in verse 8 What is his message? He talks about the fall of Babylon. That might seem kind of strange, a strange thing for, to our ears, because we don't, you know, what's Babylon? Why is, why is this such a big deal? Why is this part of this message in John, in in Revelation uh, chapter 14? Look at verse 8. John writes, Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. That word passion there, can also and has also been translated wrath. So you have in the second and the third angel, their their message is really uh, the wine of the wrath, the wine of the wrath of God. It uh, talks about the, about the fall of Babylon later in the book as well in chapter 18, verse 2, has the same words, fallen, fallen as Babylon the great. So it, it's foretold in chapter 14, and then it's described as it happens uh, pro- 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 prophetically, in chapter eighteen of Revelation, not too long from our passage. Now, Isaiah twenty-one nine says these exact words that that John is or that the angel is really quoting. It says, uh, "Fallen, fallen is Babylon." Isaiah twenty-one nine, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. Something that Jeremiah fifty-one also prophesied about that we read earlier earlier this morning. That, that whole chapter, Jeremiah chapter 51, is kind of the background, uh, the, the, to, to inform us of this, of this angel's short message in verse 8. Now think about as mighty and fearful as ancient Babylon was in her day, and as much suffering that she inflicted upon the people of Judah and other peoples as well, in taking her into captivity in 586 B.C., what was the message of Jeremiah 51? It was as good as done that she was going to be destroyed. It hadn't happened yet, but it's written in the past tense. Fallen, not not she's going to fall. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Isaiah 21 and Jeremiah chapter 51. It's as good as done. God was going to judge her for her wickedness. Now the message of this second angel in verse 8 in Revelation 14. Now obviously this angel is not talking about the earthly Babylon. The earthly Babylon was long gone from the scene of history long before John's day in the first century. One thing we have to keep in mind is Revelation constantly tells us that, that it's giving us, that, the, that, that God is giving us here, symbols or signs that teach us of something else. So Babylon clearly represents something else. What does Babylon represent? Whose fall is being prophesied here in Revelation chapter Fourteen Maybe it was an earthly city or nation that was around in john 's day. You know, some have speculated that it was Jerusalem itself, which there 's a lot of reason to, to hold to that that may have been the original idea here. It could have been Rome, although i don 't think Rome fell in the first century, so that that seems many have said it 's Rome, but it doesn 't seem like that 's a very likely option at least in john 's day uh, but whatever the case, certainly there 's a general truth here there 's a general principle that uh, we are are to take for ourselves. And I think that Babylon here represents the ungodly influence, uh, the ungodly influence of worldly nations and systems that would oppose Christ and his church, that would persecute Christ and his church. In other words, Revelation is not just about things in the first century, it's also about things now. It's also about all the way through the end of history, however long the Lord Jesus tarries, before his return, there will, be, there will be earthly nations and systems and things that oppose Christ, that oppose his church and persecute her. And so this is a, a prophetic announcement of the fall of all those things, that God will judge them, that God will put an end, a final end to all those things. You know, in the same way that ancient Babylon was finally judged and destroyed for her wickedness and idolatry and even, even in the same way, all earthly nations and systems that oppose Christ and persecute His church and tempt His people are doomed to destruction. In other words, God doesn't just judge people, He judges nations as well. What does Psalm 2 say? Psalm 2-9 talks about the Lord Jesus Christ, God's anointed, who is God's anointed king in Psalm 2? The Lord Jesus Christ, in Psalm 2, verse 9, says that basically Jesus Christ shall, quote, break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's what he's going to do to wicked kings and nations. Now, this, our passage here, this talk of the fall of Babylon, why is it here? What are we to get from this talk of the fall of Babylon? It's given here to encourage the suffering church. Not just in John's day, but throughout the history of the church, even in our day. It's given to encourage the suffering church. In other words, what does this fall of Babylon teach? It teaches that that the sufferings of God's faithful people do not go unnoticed. The persecutions of God's church does not go unnoticed, and those who would dare to hurt the apple of God's eye will not go unpunished. What did we read in Jeremiah 51 this morning? In verse 56, it says, The Lord is a God of recompense. He will surely repay. If there's anything on this earth that is doubted more than anything else, among the unbelieving, it's that. That he will surely repay. What did the devil say in the Garden of Eden? You will surely not die. that's no way that's going to happen. God won't actually judge. That's the way it's always always been, people doubting God's just judgment. What about the third, the third angel? You know, these three angels, one after the other with a loud voice and a message of judgment in the final two. Um, the first one had a ju- message of judgment upon the wicked nations and worldly influences that oppose Christ. But this third angel has a message of judgment not on nations, but on individuals who persist in unbelief, and unrepentance. Look at verses nine through eleven. In verses nine through eleven, John says, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, "If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on its on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of His anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke." of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now that imagery of worshiping the beast and, re- and receiving its mark points us back to chapter 13. You have to read that to kind of see the background of that. And I know that that, that language probably sounds rather odd to us. You know, there have been many weird interpretations many strange interpretations of this people actually teach that um, they're wrong that it's talking about an actual physical mark that you'll get uh, some of them oh you'll get like a barcode stamped on your forehead or something some such thing it's not talking about a literal outwardly visible marking or tattoo or anything of the sort it's an image of of unbelief and false worship these images are signs and symbols Intended to represent something else. So worshiping the beast, receiving its mark, it's a picture of unbelief and idolatry, false religion. It's a picture of worshiping and serving anyone or anything other than the one true and living God. That's why back in verse 7 that we looked at last Sunday, the first angel called upon people to do what? To fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. And then it says, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Worship the one true living God who made all things, not these false gods. That's part of the call to repentance. It's a call to repentance from idolatry and false religion and unbelief. Now, those who refuse to repent and turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ will experience the wrath of God in such a way. When you read the words on the page, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to get your mind wrapped around what it says. It's horrifying to contemplate. You should be horrified when you read it. That should be the effect that you read. It should make you shudder. It's with good reason these things make us uncomfortable. Because what does verse 10 say? It talks about the wine of God's wrath. And then what, how does it describe it? Poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Talking about wrath is one thing. Talking about the wrath of God, full strength. You know, people often casually, jokingly even, talk about something or some situation being hell on earth. A lot of times people say, oh, you see you in hell, as if it's going to be a party in hell, or as if it's not going to be as terrible as it it is. There's, There's never been such a thing as hell on earth. We shouldn't speak of a thing as being hell on earth. The worst things, and I don't don't ask you to try to imagine what the worst things have been, but the worst calamities, the most horrific evils, and there have been many, ever known on this earth, as awful as they were, at their worst moments, they aren't worthy of the title hell on earth. Now, God does reveal his wrath against all unrighteousness from time to time in this life. We read about it in Jeremiah 51. Paul talks about it in Romans 1, verse 18. Paul says the wrath of God is revealed, is, present tense, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So God does reveal his wrath throughout history from time to time. Think of the flood of Noah's day. That was pretty severe. That, even the flood, which wiped out all life on earth other than what was in the ark, Noah, his family, and two of every animal. That was not God's wrath poured full strength. Hard as that is to, to imagine. That's not God's wrath poured full. There was still mercy there. God still had mercy at that time. No one in this life has ever known in this life the wrath of God poured full strength or without mixture. In this life, God's wrath is mixed to some degree with mercy and grace. What what does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 44 to 45? He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. He gives life and breath and sun and rain to everyone. To the most wicked person on earth, He gives those things in this life. We, we cannot, we wouldn't want to, we cannot comprehend what the unmixed full fury of the wrath of God will be like for the unrepentant. No, nobody can comprehend it. Nobody can imagine it. In hell, all the tokens of God's mercy and kindness will be stripped away forever. That's, that's what Revelation 14 is telling us about. It talks about the reality of the wrath of God in hell. It's described as being, quote, tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Revelation 19:20 talks about hell as the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So I ask, is, is hell literally a lake of fire? I don't think that's what Revelation is meant to, to teach us. But it's not less than that. It's more than that. It's more literal than a literal lake of fire could be. It's unlike any fire we've ever seen or imagined. Thomas Watson, my favorite Puritan writer, he says this, what is all other fire compared to this but painted fire? We've had some experience with fire here in Ramona, in San Diego over the years, and awful things to to, to see and to experience and to imagine painted fire you know every christmas i think it's might be netflix or someone they have a channel that you can put on your tv that's a fireplace and i don't know if it plays music or if it's just the fireplace going and sometimes there'll be a cat going back and forth but if you don't have a fireplace you can put a channel on and it looks like a fireplace and if you walked up and touched it it wouldn't burn your hand, right? It's just a picture. It's just a a video of fire. That's what all earthly fire is compared, according to Thomas Watson, compared to hell. The wrath of God unmixed in hell makes all earthly fire look like a painted picture. That's what Revelation is teaching us. And it says in verse 11, that torment is going to go on how long? Again, it just keeps getting worse forever and ever. Just as that first angel brought a message of an eternal gospel that promised eternal life to those who believe in Christ, even so the third angel talks about a message of eternal torment to those who don't repent. And as if to make it more clear in case we still don't get the message, what does he say? Verse 11. They have no rest day or night. There's no break. There's no timeouts. There's no pause. There's no relief. Isaiah 57, 21 says, There is no peace or no rest. No peace, says my God, for the wicked. There's no peace or rest for the wicked in this life, and certainly not in death. Those who die in the Lord, though, what does verse 13 say? What a different picture this is. Those who die in the Lord are what? Blessed. and even says blessed indeed. What a difference. What a stark contrast between those are saved by the grace of God and those who don't repent. Those who die in the Lord are blessed indeed, and they're blessed, why? Because they rest from their labors. The wicked, there's no rest. Those who die in the Lord, they have rest. They rest from their labors. Their labors are done. And it even says their deeds follow them. We'll talk about that more next Sunday, Lord willing. Their deeds follow them, not to condemn you, but to be graciously rewarded for them by God. See how different death is for a believer than it is for those who don't repent. Those who don't repent have no rest in this life, no peace with God, and certainly no rest or peace in death. But believers who die in the Lord are blessed indeed in all ways. You know, some even in the church teach that God's wrath will involve what we call annihilationism. It's just what it sounds like. They say, well, the unbelieving will just cease to exist. God will destroy them. Uh, and that'll be it. They won't have eternal torment in hell. That is not what the Bible teaches. I understand why somebody would want, would want to hold to that. It's a much more merciful sounding thing, but the Bible doesn't teach that. It's wishful thinking. It's been said many times. I'm sure I've said it a number of times, but every single sin against a holy God is an infinite offense. There are no small, the, the, J.I. Packer I think said it, there can be no small sins against an infinite God, against an infinitely holy God. And so what does that mean? Every sin is an infinite offense and brings an infinite debt of God's wrath and punishment. That's why hell goes on forever and ever with no rest day or night. We, we On your own, if you're outside of Christ and still in your sins, No amount of hell will ever pay the full price for one sin. And how many times have we broken God's commandments today? I dare say more than once in thought, word, and even in deed. Now again, think if you're you're a believer in Christ, think about the sufferings of Christ on your behalf. In light of this passage, think about the sufferings of Christ. 1 John 4, 9-10 says... In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to what? To be the propitiation for our sins. There's a word you don't hear much these days, propitiation. What what does that mean? What does it mean when John says in the scriptures that God sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for our sins. What does propitiation mean? It's a word we need to recover in our vocabulary, much like providence and other words. Propitiation means to satisfy or pay the full price of the justice and wrath of God for our sin. To remove it from us and pay for it in full. To atone by his sacrifice for our sins. He endured the full wrath of God unmixed that we deserve for our sins, he took that in our place on the cross so that we might be forgiven and accepted by God as righteous in his sight. That's propitiation. And that's what Christ became for us, for our sins and for our salvation. So when you read, brothers and sisters, when you read a passage like Revelation 14, as disturbing and hard to read as it might be, don't forget that aspect of it. It, let it remind you of what Jesus took in your place. Of what he endured, the wrath of God the Father, for our sins in your place on the cross in his suffering. See how the love of God, as John says, was made manifest toward you in Jesus Christ. See what Christ, your Lord and Savior, did and endured to reconcile you to God. You know, every first Sunday, We recite, at least every other first Sunday, we recite together the Apostles' Creed. And we talked about this last Sunday night, actually. Heidelberg Catechism, question 44, teaches us about Christ's sufferings uh, and that, quote, especially on the cross, he hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. Why do we say in the Apostles' Creed that little line that some people omit? He descended into hell. We confess it every time we say that the Apostles' Creed that Christ descended into hell, and what is that meant to teach us? It's meant to teach us that by His sufferings on the cross, especially on the cross, He had delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. That's why we have that in the Apostles' Creed, to remind us of what we've been saved from by Christ. He has saved us, saved you, if you're a Christian, from the eternal torment in hell that you read of here in Revelation chapter Fourteen. Now, no one, no one likes to hear of the judgment to come. No one likes to preach about it. I take no enjoyment or satisfaction in preaching from it. But it's here. It's in the Bible, and so we must preach it. The scriptures clearly testify to these things, and so passages like this one that we're looking at in Revelation fourteen um, are meant. They're there for a reason. Why are they there? They're meant to encourage believers. And they're meant to warn the unrepentant. Just like we saw last week and when we read Jonah chapter 3 and 4. What was Jonah's message? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown or overturned. But why did God send him in the first place? To turn him to repentance. He gives warnings for a reason. Because God doesn't take delight in the death of the wicked And so I have to ask this morning, have you repented of your sin and turned to Christ by faith? This this third angel's message especially is a warning for each one. Have you turned to Christ by faith? Jesus alone is our refuge from the wrath of God. He alone has taken the wrath of God in our place that we all justly deserve for our sins. Psalm 2 verse 12 says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And Psalm 2 is about Christ. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let us use text like this. Let us read a text like ours this morning. And let it teach us to call on our neighbors, our sinners, to repent and turn to Christ while there's still time. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.11, he says, Therefore, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And the context of that passage was the judgment that Christ was going, is going to judge. And let us let texts like this one remind you of the greatness of the grace of God toward you in Jesus Christ, that he would send his only begotten son to pay the price for your sins and mine on the cross, that you and I might be reconciled to God and be saved from torments in hell and have heaven forever. Let's, let's pray.